Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Thank you, Parker. Well, this is my last time preaching for a few months, and I'm delighted to be able to be here, and I'm delighted to be leaving tomorrow morning for Turkey with Cheryl for a few weeks. I'm looking forward to visiting some of the things that you read about in the Bible, a few more. Haran, where Abraham left from to go to the promised land. Antioch, where the first Christian church was, we're looking, looking forward to being. And we're going to find the ark because we're going by Mount Ararat, all right? So pray for us that we're able to bring back some slivers of it for you. If I get some, I'll bring enough to share, okay? Um, we have been reading Matthew 23. It's a sermon, in a sense, preached by Jesus in the final week of his life. And so it assumes sort of an exalted place in Scripture and should in our minds as well because all these things that come at the end are important. If you know that, that you are approaching death and you are saying farewell to your family, you talk about important things. And this is what Jesus is doing here. But they're not all positive. Jesus is not Pollyanna walking around with a smile on his face saying, it's lovely, it's lovely, I love you, it's wonderful. This is a very negative chapter. And, uh, and it's one consistent whole of an attack. It's one sermon against one group of religious leaders. And uh, this morning, I want us to listen to it as the word of Jesus, one lengthy diatribe. Uh, and so I've asked sweet Amelia not to put it up on the, on the screen behind me. If you want to read along in the Bible, you're welcome to, or on your, you know, on your phone, something like that. But I've asked Jordan to come up and to read it for us so that we can hear the whole chapter at once, all right? So let's stand for the reading of God's word, Matthew 23. Oh, sorry. All right, Matthew uh, 23, this is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying... The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and keep, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and they do not do them. And they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all the deeds to be noticed by men, for they brought in their phylacteries, they lengthen the tassels of their garments, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues, and respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by men. But do not, but do not be called rabbi, for your, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Do not be called instructors. For one is your instructor, and that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, 
and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice, twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is obligated. You fools and blind men, for which is more important, the gold or the sanctuary that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar and swears both by the altar and everything on it, and whoever swears by the sanctuary, swears both by the sanctuary and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by whom who, him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain at a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness." In this way, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you blind, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn monuments of righteousness. And you say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you bear witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? On account of this, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, and when the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you did not want it. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now 
on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jordan. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is true, and I ask, Father, this morning that my words may reflect your words and they may be received as your word, and that you'll give them power by the Holy Spirit that they may bring conviction. In Jesus' name, amen. The Rolling Stones put out an album called Sympathy for the Devil back in the 1970s. No one has sympathy for the devil, but of course people do have sympathy for the devil because they put out an album and there were certain people who found it very cool to have sympathy for the devil, you know, as an abstract concept at least. Yeah, I sympathize with the devil. Nihilism, anarchy, all these things are sympathy for the devil. It's the, it's the hatred of the pure and the, the right and the glorying in the dark. Sympathy for the devil. Well, the, the reality is that the Bible doesn't tell us not to sympathize with the devil. It assumes we won't. God's people don't sympathize with Satan. And so it doesn't say, you should not sympathize with the devil. It assumes that you don't. You can't really claim to be a child of God and sympathize with the devil. But it is possible to sympathize with friends of the devil. It is possible to lionize those who are in league with the devil. We don't sympathize with the devil or worship the devil, but we come at times very close to worshiping the devil because we hold up his instruments as God's instruments and exchange God's glory and the glory of his son for the glory of man. And whenever that's done, it is actually sympathy for the devil, right? To sympathize with men over God is to sympathize with the devil. It is to sympathize with the sinner rather than the righteous. It is to sympathize with the enemy of God rather than with God. And in many areas of life, you and I sympathize with the devil because we sympathize with his agents, because we look without the clarity of Christ's view on those who are satanic. And then the Pharisees are satanic. Instruments of Satan and yet beloved of righteous religious people. And the religious people love Pharisees. You love Pharisees, I love Pharisees, we like the Pharisees. In fact, many of us want to be Pharisees. That's our highest goal in life, is to be a Pharisee. Now, we don't call it Pharisaism because we know that Pharisees are bad. But in the end, what we want, what we seek, the way we live, lionizes, says, oh, that's the life. They're the people. They are the creme de la creme. They are the thing. And Pharisees are, in fact, very good people. They are. It's easy to sympathize with the Pharisees. This is why Jesus spends this much time in the final week of his life attacking them. Because he knows his disciples are, are trending towards and will always be susceptible to 
lionizing them. Instead of saying, woe to you, as Jesus says, we're going to say, welcome you to the Pharisee. We're going to say, wow, to the Pharisee, not woe. Wow, look at that. And you have done it, and I have done it. And in certain ways, the punishment that comes on Jerusalem has come on Zion today because of our lionizing of the Pharisee. Because we love the Pharisee, and we seek the Pharisee, and we adore the Pharisee, and we want to be the Pharisee. And so what Jesus says at the end of this chapter, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, America, America, evangelicalism, evangelicalism, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you did not want it. American church, American church, you who kill the prophets and stone the messengers of God. And Jerusalem, you know, what, what is Jerusalem saying at this point when they hear Jesus say this? Sounds like he may be saying these things in the temple. We don't know exactly where it was preached, but it, it's certainly around the Pharisees and around people who are tending to sympathize with them. Jerusalem. And Jerusalem goes, not me. No, not me. This is the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Zion, where Abraham offered his son, where David had his kingdom and, his, and put the temple under Solomon and had his throne, not Jerusalem, no. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You, American Christian, American Christian, how I longed to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you didn't want it. And so your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This judgment rests on us. And the Pharisees, they're good people. Now, of course, you understand that the Pharisees are not good people. I mean, definitionally, <laughs> the Pharisees are not good people. You call someone a Pharisee, and they go, oh, rah, 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 rah. I don't like that. Don't call me a Pharisee. They're hypocrites. They were the objects of Christ's wrath. Jesus said, woe to you. I don't want to be called a Pharisee. But as Jesus goes through this sermon, this diatribe, and speaks of the character of the Pharisees, you should be able to find, even if you reject the name, the character, the desires of the Pharisees in your own heart, in my own heart. And if you don't, well, then we're blind. And if we don't see that our lionizing of the Pharisees has led the church in America to be desolate, every week a new megachurch goes down because the pastor stole the money or had sex with the women or this. It's just... It's a metronome, boom, 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 story after story after story after story, church after church after church, and there is nothing left except God and his spirit who we ask to be in our midst and thus hope. But until we recognize that we are the Pharisees and the American church is the church of the Pharisees, 
we're going to repeat this and we're going to be desolate. And our children, whom Jesus longs to gather to him, will not be gathered to him. I long to gather your children, Jesus says. But you would not have it because you will not forsake the path of the Pharisee. Therefore, your children are cursed. You don't want your children cursed. I don't know a person in this room that would say, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to have my children cursed. But Jesus says at the end here, your children are cursed because you will not leave this path. Because you embrace the posture and desires, the greed, the lifestyle of the Pharisee. So let's speak of the Pharisees, this group. And I want to get rid of some false views of them because you're going to say, I'm not a Pharisee and I don't know any Pharisees. And so let me just get rid of the false views that have become prevalent. We say today that the Pharisees, well, they didn't believe. They just did. They didn't believe. They were deniers of the principle of faith. They, they were not of the faith of Abraham. They were doers. They, they were trying to earn God's, God's mercy. They're trying to earn God's grace. And that's just a, it's, it's kind of hogwash, you know. Even the fact that you give credence to that is, is a sign that you haven't read the Old Testament. If you're willing to say that the Pharisees, who were the champions of Old Testament literal truth, that they were deniers of the importance of faith, well, I mean... Do you think the Pharisees hadn't read what Habakkuk says, that the just shall live by faith? Do you think they didn't understand the importance of faith? Do you think when they stood against the Sadducees who said there's no resurrection, there's no life to come, do you think that they weren't seeing themselves, viewing themselves as defenders of faith? Of course they were. They hated the Sadducees because the Sadducees didn't have faith. They didn't believe the word. The Pharisees, they believed. Down to the little pinch of dill and mint. Down to that little pinch, they were men of faith. They believed. It's the Sadducees who denied faith. The Herodians, not the Pharisees. We think that the Pharisees were brazen hypocrites. Well, that's not true. They weren't brazen crazy hypocrites who walked around in a blaze of hypocritical glory if hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue well the pharisees diligently paid their homage to virtue i mean they were not obvious hypocrites they were so righteous that the rich older women of Judea were thoroughly impressed by them. And what kind of a, a younger man is it that thoroughly impresses a wealthy older woman? Well, it's not a scandalous guy, is it? It's not a, a guy who's living out there on the edge. Successful, wealthy older women are not fans of the guys who are out there on the edge. And the Pharisees were not out there on the edge. They led good lives. They were conventionally, in every way, conventionally righteous. They were righteous people. Remember, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and Nicodemus 
was a good man. There are other Pharisees who are good men. But the limit on the goodness of the Pharisee is that they are as good as you can possibly get with one caveat. As good as you can possibly get without Jesus. As good as you can possibly be without Christ. That's the Pharisees. So we say that the the Pharisees were practitioners of work righteousness. They said, it's my good deeds. No! They didn't think their good deeds overcame their sin. No one thinks that they can put in a balance their sin and their good deeds and have the one wipe the other out. You don't think that, do you? If you do, you're stupid. This is not the way that the human mind conceives of itself because the human mind knows the truth of its sinfulness. And it understands that if it keeps on putting good deeds out here, that it keeps on manufacturing bad deeds here and here and here, and they're just constantly, constantly flowing so that even when we're together in the church, there is sin going on in our minds and our hearts, and we are filled with sin. We're not stupid people, and the Pharisees weren't stupid people. They didn't think. Their righteous deeds outweighed their sins. What they did believe was that by their righteous deeds, they kind of put God in a box where he had to forgive them. But they, as much as you, said it's the mercy of God by which we go to heaven. They understood forgiveness. They understood the vicarious nature of our righteousness. They understood that they had to put a lamb to death or an ox to death or offer a pigeon they were going to be righteous before God. They understood the day of atonement when the scapegoat was sent out. And they understood the Passover when the lamb was sacrificed so that their children wouldn't die. They understood it all. And if they understood that, they understand that righteousness is with God. They did not think righteousness was in them. But they did not have Jesus. And therefore, they thought, well... I can live by the ceremonies and God will save me. And they trusted in their ceremonies. They were masters of ceremonies. They loved ceremonies. They thought of the ceremonies as their righteousness. They never denied their own sin. They never denied that God needed to cleanse them. They proclaimed the mercy of God. They advocated the need to turn for God as a sinful child to a forgiving father to receive grace. Pharisees taught grace. You're going to say, no, David. Everything I've ever heard says that the Pharisees thought they were earning it. You're not reading the Bible if you think that. You don't understand the Old Testament as well as these men did. The Old Testament is clear. You can't earn God's favor. How many times in the Old Testament does God say, look, you know, the sacrifices that I want are are not the bulls and the rams you give me. I want your heart and that I'm going to send one who will become the sacrifice for you. You listen to Isaiah when he says of the Messiah, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, on the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he, he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is done. So he openeth not his mouth. And then John the Baptist came and he proclaimed that Isaiah's words were being fulfilled. And he said, behold, look. That's what it means. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he pointed at Jesus. And we're told that his disciples ran away from him to Jesus when they heard that because they knew the prophecies and they understood and all the Pharisees turned their attention from John the Baptist to Jesus because they understood that they needed a sacrifice but they did not get Jesus they would not bow to Jesus they knew it all they understood it all but deep in them was this root of pride and ego and and unwillingness to submit, lawlessness, Jesus calls them, they are lawless. They want to be God, and they are not willing to admit that Jesus is God. And so as you look at the Pharisees, I want you to understand that you think of Pharisaism as something someone else does, but it's something you do and I do. It's not a distant threat, it's close and personal. We want to think we could never be Pharisees. We're not that arrogant. We're not that self-righteous. We're not that cartoonishly hypocritical. Most of all, we're not that stupid. Honestly, you think of the Pharisees as cartoonish figures of evil, kind of like Star Wars stormtroopers, but without the precision, without the cool uniforms. It's not you, it's not me, is it? Should we feel sympathy for the Pharisees? These men who are as good as you can possibly be without Jesus? Are they bad people with hearts of gold, Robin Hoods, religiously speaking? Aren't they people who are striving? People that we should, with charity of judgment, look on and say, well, you know, they're really working at it. They love the Bible. They teach the truth. Even Jesus said you should obey them because they sit in Moses' seat. They can't be all bad. They defend faith. They preach the mercy of God. They hate the cynical Sadducees. They believe in faith. They believe in the resurrection. The truth is we avoid the reality of who the Pharisees were and how they lived and believed because we don't want to realize how much they are like us and how much we are like them. And we are more like them and they are more like us than we ever want to admit. The Pharisees were not different from typical Jews. They were considered the very best Jews of their day. And Pharisees today are the best Christians in the eyes of most Christians. In fact, Pharisees were admired in Christ's day and they remain admired today. Two years ago, 
bunch of us were in Jerusalem on our trip to Israel on a Friday night as the Jews, the observant Jews, not the secular Jews, as the Jews made their way on a Friday evening to the center of the city, to the Temple Mount, where the Jews gathered to pray at the Wailing Wall. It's known as the Wailing Wall. It's the foundation of Solomon's temple, of Herod's temple, this huge wall on the top of which is the Muslim, on the grounds were the temple, the Muslim mosque. So the Jews gather below at the wall and they gather there to pray. And it was quite a scene. We were drawn towards the place because we saw all these Jews wearing their incredible best finery, walking towards the center of the city. And so we said, let's follow and see where they're going. We didn't know where they were going, but we just saw so many of them, the men in their their beautiful black robes and their exquisitely expensive robes and their hats, these tall, round hats that they wear made of fur. I looked them up. I was on the plane with a guy who had a a hat box with him and uh, had the name of the the shop. So I looked up the hat on the internet. I could find it. It was a $20,000 hat, you know, $20,000 hat. And the scene was a, a beautiful sort of balmy, first balmy Friday evening of the year. All these people dressed to the nines in their orthodox finery converging. And we followed them and we came behind them. We realized they were going to the Wailing Wall. We didn't know it initially, but we got there. Here was this huge plaza filled with people. And then a divide beyond which if you went, you had to be worshiping. They didn't ask if you were a Jew, but they asked if you were going to pray. And then in that area that was two or three acres by the wall that had the, the divide between those who were actually actively worshiping and those who were watching, um, there was a center wall that bisected that area. And on one side were the men, and on the other side were the women who were down there to pray. If you were going there, you, you could walk beyond the first wall, and there was maybe from here to the end of the parking lot, and then there was this wall that came out about 150 feet. And if you were going to pray, you had to go to one side or the other at that point and pray. There was dancing. There was singing. It was a scene of, well, some of you were there. Weren't you there, Lisa? Of religious fervor, wasn't it? I mean, just absolutely feverish. It was, it was electric down there. And the men were dancing, holding arms, and all the soldiers that were Orthodox, holding arms and dancing in circles. And the women were standing at the, at the divide and looking over at the men as they danced and sang. And we were behind that first wall where you had to be if you weren't actively worshiping. And, and there were people who were gathering in that area and then they'd go as a group in, in to worship. And uh, there was this young couple, this very attractive young Hasidic couple. It turned out they were from New York. I don't know if it was their first time in Jerusalem, but it was one of their first times. And uh, they were beaming. I mean, they were as happy as you can possibly look, you know, just beaming with delight. 
And some of our group went and talked to them. And they said, they said, oh, it's just the privilege of our lives. It's the privilege of our lives to be here on the Sabbath Eve, on this first Sabbath Eve of the, of the kind of balmy weather. So everyone's come out for it. To be here, to be praying to God at the Wailing Wall on a Sabbath Eve. It's glory. And then we get to celebrate the Sabbath. And members of our group were talking to them. And they came back to our group and said, wow, they really love God. Wow. They are committed to God. Look at their joy in, in worshiping. Look at their joy in singing and praying. Look at their joy in the Sabbath. And that young couple were quite literally descendants of the Pharisees. As good as you can possibly be without Jesus. And we love it. And we say, hey, isn't this great? But there's no Jesus. And no one wants to say, hey, there's no Jesus here. No one wants to call that out and say, there's no Jesus. You don't have Jesus. You know, you've got a lot of really nice looking things, but you don't have Jesus. So I want to talk to you about what the Pharisees have and then what we need. Pharisees have a form of righteousness. It's, it was attractive. That young couple in their fervor at the Wailing Wall, they were immensely attractive. It wasn't hurt by the fact that they were both good looking, you know, and they were all out for God. God is here. We're praying to him. But we have to, as Christians, make certain judgments, don't we? We're going to die. And isn't the fundamental judgment that anything that denies Jesus is not truly of God? If you worship a God who does not have a son, who came to earth and died for men as God, then you're you may as well go to the top of that hill where the Muslims are. Because that's their God too. So they have a form of righteousness, don't they? They do, and it's sacrificial at points, you know? They're willing to pay prices. They tithe this and this and this, and they count it up, and they, they're not just greedy. They're righteous, sacrificially righteous. Their children look good. There's a material wealth that underlines their spiritual potency. That's the thing that the Pharisees want. They want good looks. They want good looks because they don't have Jesus to give them a good heart. They want good looks. And so they put on a great show. And I think evangelicalism in America, the church in America has put on a great show for 50, 100 years. A great show. But somehow at the end, it seems like the celluloid in the movie, in the movie projector that's putting on the show always catches fire and the, the projection room burns up. And so we move on from, well, from 
Bill Gothard. Name many of you won't recognize, but those of you who are my age will know. So we move on once Bill Gothard's projection room burns up. Oh, this show's over. Let's move. Let's find another good show. We move on to Bill Hybels and Cedar and Willow Creek. Oh, here's a good show. This is a good show. We found the good show. We know what it looks like now. And we go and we say, ah, we found it. And then you, you smell the smoke. And pretty soon you see the flames. And you look back and that projection booth is on fire. And the pastors have been sleeping with women. And there's been all sorts of stuff. And you go, oh, no. Oh, no. And so we're looking and we're constantly looking. And we're saying, well, okay, I trust John MacArthur. I trust John Piper. You know, these are good guys. But Jesus has said to us, <laughs> it's not about man. And Pharisees are all about men. He says, they love the place of honor at banquets. They like to be at the front of the crowd. And many of the people you're turning to because they're putting on a good show, they love the limelight. They love it. They live for the limelight. They live to have their name out there. They actually put their name on the Bible. This is my Bible. And you go, how can you love Jesus and put your name on his word? Isn't there something so obviously and fundamentally pharisaical about it that every one of us should say, anathema. This is terrible. But no, we went and bought those Bibles, didn't we? And we went and heard those men speak and we lionized those men and we said, well, at least they're not going to fall into the traps that we saw with those other men whose projection booths went up in, in flames. This show's a good show. It's a righteous show. This is the right show. And we put another man in the place of Jesus Christ. And we are going serially from man to man to man to man. And some of them are good men. I love John Piper. But let me tell you, when Jesus says, do not be called rabbi, don't be called a teacher, don't you be called it and don't you call anyone on earth that, these guys live to be called teachers and, and, to, and to have this acclaim. They do. And you're willing to give it because if you're giving it to a guy like John Piper, surely you've got to be close to Jesus because he's closer than all these other guys, isn't he? And so Jesus speaks about the Pharisees and he says, you know, you love your religious ceremonies. You love all these things. You love to be called teacher. You love the preeminent place. You love your judgment. So you say that the offering that we bring to the altar is something, but the altar itself, which God instituted, that he gave is nothing, you know. You love your judgments, you love your wisdom, you dutifully give your tithes, you do all these things, and inside, you're dirty. You're just dirty, 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 dirty. Some of you understand this. You've lived and you have done these things and you've followed these men and you still feel the dirt. And the dirt is overwhelming. I have a, I've kind of, I don't know what to describe it, a weird feeling when I see a guy who shines 
the mag wheels on his car. I don't know if people do it as much today as they did when I was young. You know what mag wheels are? They're the uh, aluminum wheels that, you know, you can, you, if you, I, I recently saw that Mercedes on its Maybach has a set of wheels that are an option. And uh, you go for those wheels, kind of reminiscent of the Mercedes wheels in the 1980s. You buy those wheels, you know how much that option is for your car? It's $20,000 for the, <laughs> I'm going, whoa. But you know, when I was growing up, there were always guys who'd, who'd go and spend $2,000 on a set of wheels and put them on their car. And I'd, I'd go, eh, eh, eh. I don't get it. Because even in a Maybach, <laughs> there are, you know, which is the $250,000 Mercedes top of the line. Even in the Maybach, if you look behind the wheel, there is a caliper, okay? And there are some, I don't know, you know, there may be a number of pistons on that caliper, more than one like you have or I have, maybe four or eight. But there's still, there's a rotor, which is made of metal. And there are pads, they may be ceramic, they may be asbestos, they may be, there is, there is a piston or a set of pistons and they're driven by, by brake fluid, right? Okay, and all that system is there inside the wheel. Under, the wheel covers it, but if you look through the vents in the wheel, you can see it, okay? And, and, and the fact, the purpose of that system that's inside the wheel is to stop your car, so it's important. These brakes stop your car by clamping down the ceramic pads or the asbestos pads on the rotating metal disc, you stop your car. And of course, what happens is as they bite into the metal, you are chewing up pieces of metal, right? And you're chewing up your pads. And the pads are made of junk, ugly stuff. And it's all in an environment that has oil around it and brake fluid. And eventually, all that crud, it doesn't matter if you have the $20,000 wheels on your Mercedes. If you drive it, this crud's gonna come out and it's going to cover your wheel, you know? And you can live to, to clean your wheel. You can clean it every night, but the next day, it's gonna be dirty again if you drive that car because you need your brakes. You have to stop. That's how they work. And this is the Pharisees. You know, you can clean it up day after day. Erase your browser history. Give your apologies to the people you said things to. Hope to clean it up. And Pharisees did all these things. But at the center of your life, if you don't have Jesus, you have this heart that spews out dirt, 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 dirt. And so you clean and you clean and you clean and the dirt keeps on coming. And the only way to live a righteous life is to have Jesus. And this is why when Nicodemus preeminent Pharisee comes to Jesus in the night and just says hey man Jesus he's not asking Jesus anything really he's just saying hey man yeah I see God's with you man he sees something about Jesus and he says hey guy hey hey 
what it is. Hey, Jesus says, yeah. Unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that Pharisee says, whoa, whoa. Well, how, how can that be? And Jesus says, yeah, the spirit moves where it wills, but you shouldn't be surprised at this. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's saying to him, your need is me. You need what I have and what I give, which is the righteousness that changes your heart and makes you new, that gives you a new heart so that you're no longer producing all this dirt because the Pharisees, like you and me, are doing constant cleanup jobs, putting themselves up in the air on pedestals, saying, trying to pretend that they don't have this rotten heart. Jesus says, you need a new heart. And I say to you, you and I need new hearts. We don't need to look good. We need to be born again. Have you been born again by Jesus Christ? Have you seen the glory of Jesus? Do you see him? You know, the beautiful thing about Nicodemus is by the end, that man, he's a Pharisee. He's a good Pharisee. There are a lot of good Pharisees. That man says, I needed him. I needed that guy. And he claims the body. And he, we believe, is one of the first disciples to come to know Jesus after the resurrection. He was born again because he bowed his knee to Jesus. He stopped trying to create monuments to himself and to others. He didn't look at any man. That's what this monument building's all about, you know? You guys are making monuments. Whenever you go to a church, whenever you go to a religious or Christian setting where the focus is on a man, where the man is big, even if it's a dead man, recognize you're in the land of the Pharisees. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is everything. And Nicodemus, praise God, at some point there, bows his knee to Jesus, receives a new heart, and is what he said. How can it be? He's born again. Have you been born again? Have you come to know Jesus? He's offering it to you. He's saying at the end, how I long for you to come to me. I long for you, but you won't do it. Bow your knee to Jesus. Right at this moment, say to Jesus, I'm done rebelling and trying to make myself look good. I want a changed heart. Say it to Jesus. He's listening to you, and he said to you, hey, Jerusalem, Christ the word, you people. You who killed the prophets and some of those who are sent to you. I want to gather your children together. I want to bring them under me like a hen gathers her chicks. But you did not want it. The problem is not with Christ. It's not that he doesn't want you. It's that you don't want him. You're a Pharisee. We want our own righteousness rather than a new heart. So I, I call you, throw away the lives of a Pharisee.
throw it away, have nothing to do with it, hate it. Stop worshiping men. Stop saying, oh, I've got to be good because I've chosen a good show. I'm following a good show. The last one was bad, but I'm on to the next thing and it's good. And worship Jesus. Go to churches where Jesus is everything and men are nothing. Go to churches where the call is to be born again so that your heart is new. Not to, to live with your old heart and just say it's hard. But the call is to be born again and to become a new creation in Christ. That's the glory of Jesus. And that's the glory that Pharisees would not have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and his glory. We thank you that he calls us and wants us and tells us that he is willing to make us new. And that it's we who don't want this because, Father, that gives us hope. Because if we're feeling the, the weight and the dirt of our hearts, we can turn to Jesus and know that he'll receive us. And I pray that we will all do that. In Jesus' name, amen.